We've covered a lot of ground so far as we've been going through this uh, study in the book of Judges. If you're visiting with us today, we're attempting to read a couple chapters before we get together and talk about them, see what God has for us in this uh, little red book. A lot of great stories, and sometimes you even hear them when you're in, if you grew up in the church, but uh, when you're a child, a lot of the details are left out, as some of you who've been reading for yourself can see. So, we've covered a lot of ground. Are you shocked yet? If you've been reading, if you've been listening, what we find is that one of the most shocking features is not the horror of the people's sins that we read about in this book, but the glory of the salvation from those sins that God provides. That's always the way it is. It's a salvation that you and I, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, it's a salvation that's only possible from our God of perfect justice. The people are looking for justice. We today are looking for justice in our world. But we have a God who is so patient, isn't he? Aren't, and aren't you glad that he's patient? Because I'll tell you what, right now, I'd have been gone long ago pulled out of here. He's patient. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He has this overflowing, steadfast love and this unwavering faithfulness in the face of what we sometimes do. It's like what we read in Exodus 34, and the the children of Israel know this, these these kids that we're reading about over the last few weeks. Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord And just in case you didn't get it, let me repeat it. The Lord, this is Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But get this, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There are consequences for what we do on this planet. So let's finish Judge Gideon. That's where we are. Remember last week we finished off halfway through the story. We're going to finish off Judge Gideon's story and we're going to look at the anti-judge after him. We'll hit the highlights You can read the rest, in case you haven't already. And what quite often you discover with God is that he says to us something like this, you need fewer men. (laughs) Some of you who may be single today are going, what? If If you're a female, you're going, what? No, you need fewer men. Midian, Israel's next door cousins, we read were being used by God to oppress his kids, and God actually creates this oppression to bring his kids to an acknowledgement of and a repentance from their wickedness. They'd been including other gods in their lives. No no one here would ever do that, right? They'd been worshiping lesser gods alongside of Yahweh. And we left off last week with Gideon being the guy God chooses, the guy God encourages, and the guy God's Spirit actually envelopes. 
Hebrew has, the Hebrew language has the word clothed. He's empowered by God to do this wonderful thing. And, and we read and finished off, Gideon puts out a call to some of the tribes of Israel, and some respond, respond in chapter 7 of Judges, verse 1, we read that the two armies, you got Gideon's men and the Midianites, and they're camped close to one another. They can probably hear each other. They can probably spy on each other, and they are. And Israel has 32,000 men who respond to Gideon's call. That's a, lot, that's a big number of guys, right? Well, Midian and all of the hordes from their alliances number over 135,000. Yeah, so it's like, you doing the math? Anybody just did it? It's four to one, all right? It's over four to one. And those are not good odds in any battle. If you're sitting there and you got your sword and there's four guys with swords and you go, right? It's like, this isn't good. So God says in, chapter, in verse 2 the pe- to Gideon, you know, Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. And Gideon's like, oh, you meant to say there's not enough of us and you're going to get us some more. And God's like, no. This is not the kind of advice you're going to find in any military manual. Why do you reduce the army's strength? Well, God answers it. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. We the people will either praise God for the victories in this life or we will praise and boast in what happens in life ourselves. And it's usually the latter. Human sin is such that if there is ever an opportunity to boast in our own work, what we have done, even if it's in a casual, um, unassuming way, just casually mention, hey, did you notice? That was me. Uh, We'll find a way to do it. And I have to catch myself continually on this. Do you? Like, it's like somebody tells a story and you're like, oh, yeah, well, not you. Is it just me? Is it just me? Okay, thank you. And I want you to notice with me what I think is the biggest point here. God says that any, any kind of boasting like that, he, he describes it as it's over me or against me. In other words, as soon as you and I begin to believe that we deserve the credit for rescuing or delivering ourselves or even somebody else, that we have the opportunity to do that, and we take the credit for it, we take the glory away from God, the glory that He rightly deserves. And we set ourselves up as alternative heroes, uh, uh, kind of false saviors like some of these judges turned out to be. And some have commented that this is the greatest spiritual danger there is, that we should somehow believe that we can save or have saved ourselves that we had some kind of part in our salvation before God, even a small part. The lesson we always need to remember is that salvation is by God's gracious action, not by you and I earning it through our actions, ever. So God tells Gideon to decrease the number of the men, and the first decrease that we read is in verse 7, I mean, sorry, chapter 7, verse 3, and he, God says, I want you to send home, and ask all the guys whether they really want to be here. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? So you know there's 135,000 and there's 30, 32,000 of you and you're like, do you want to be here? Uh, no. So God says, those who tremble with fear, let them go home. Just let them go. No, no repercussions, nothing. Just let them go. They don't have to be here. So it turns out that that's 22,000 men. <laughs> that's over two-thirds. And so these are the men who were able to admit publicly that they had no heart for this battle. I got, I got kids at home. I got stuff to do. You know, I just don't want to be here. I'm not a good fighter. I've never, I haven't even used a sword before. And they get to go home. Can you imagine what that would be like? So now we're talking... Over 13 to 1 are the odds. And it's going to get even worse. Can you imagine how demoralizing this would have been for the guys left? They just see two-thirds of the camp get up. And say, where, are you, where are you guys going? We were told we can go home. <laughs> no, you weren't. Yes, we were. <laughs> Gideon said, God said. So we're out of here. Okay. You can, you can have my sword. You can have two swords. But there's a principle of, of God at work here, and it's found in places like 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, Paul explains to the Corinthians and to you and I that he's been privileged at some place in his life with a vision of heaven. It's, it's amazing. It's in verses 2 through 6. Yet, right with that, he says, but with that amazing privilege, I've also been suffering with what he calls in verse 7, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul, it said, he says, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But instead of taking it away, the Lord gave him what many believe to be a physical health issue, a thorn. Others think it might have been some sort of spiritual oppression. But why? Regardless of what it was. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited. Wouldn't you be like, Lord, I promise I won't become conceited. I just take it away. I promise. It's not going to happen. Uh, I'll, I'll get people around me to remind me, don't be conceited, and, to, you know, and discipline me. But take this thing away. It's killing me. And God says, no. Instead, Paul learns what God wants Gideon to learn and what he wants each of us in this room to learn and to live out, not just learn. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. My power is most clearly revealed, God says, in weakness. Amen. You know, that doesn't fit very well in our culture's penchant for wanting leaders and for wanting even ourselves to have good looks, strength, success, popularity, prosperity. Instead, we can get disappointed when we don't have those things, and we can get jealous when we see that others have those things. And Paul's response to all this is absolute trust and this godly humility that we all need to exhibit, and it's the exact opposite of the 
human conceit that we see throughout our world today. It's in verses 9 and 10 of, of Corinthians 12. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's what's going on in the judge's story with Gideon. So after this weight reduction, God says to Gideon, you're still too heavy. <laughs> you're still too heavy on the Wait a minute. Two-thirds of the guys are out of here. What? The, the, the other guys are not feeling it anymore. <laughs> still too heavy. So God has Gideon whittle them down to 300. Have you, can you do the math real quick? That's 450 to 1. Pretty risky odds. Can, can you comprehend that? For, can you comprehend 450 men with swords? And there's you with a sword. And you're like, <laughs> ah. And they're like, Bob, come up and look at this. <laughs> uh, we don't need everybody. I got this. It's, and we need to comprehend something about God here. What's behind God reducing the size of his children? You know, it's got nothing to do with the victory, winning the battle. Because that's what usually captures our attention in life, right? We, we're all about the present dilemma and what's going on and how can we solve it? How can we beat it? This is everything, you know, the here and now. God can win the victory through just one guy. He's going to show it to us later when we get to Samson. God can win the victory through thousands of men like he did earlier. We saw Deborah and Barak and their armies. God can obtain the victory without anyone at all. He could have just gone, Midianites, they're gone. God reduces the number of the soldiers because he knows that the number of men that Israel has are too many for Israel to see clearly where all the praise and all the glory is supposed to go. Because it's always about God. We were created to what? To glorify God. By the way, even with this incredible reduction and God's unbelievably incredible victory, Israel is still going to miss the point. You and I cannot miss this point. God miraculously gives them the victory. You can read the story for yourself. I heard it in Sunday school a dozen times. No, I'm not going to tell it. You read it. You, you, you read the story. It's an amazing, amazing fight. It's just unbelievable. And the hordes and the, of, of these oppressors turn on each other in fear, and they run, and Gideon and all these Israelites chase them. They join in on the chase and the ensuing massacre. It's, it's uh, pretty bloody. And Gideon finally catches up with the kings of the Midianite army, and he executes them. And there's this really interesting circular thread that takes place. The guy writing Judges puts in here in the narrative. In the beginning, we met Gideon hiding from the Midianites where? Do you remember? In a wine press, right? And then he 
is called by God and he sacrifices to God on a rock. Remember that? And in the end, the Midianite kings are hiding from Gideon and he kills them by a wine press, by a rock. Poetic justice. But what we see as we go on in this story is that sin, if it's not taken care of, if it's allowed to fester, has a downward spiral every time. You've probably noticed that with each of the judges we've looked at, um, that once God rescues his people through the, the judge from their oppression, the only further detail given at the end of the story is the length of the peace they got to enjoy and under that particular judge, and it's usually just one verse. All of a sudden, when we come to Gideon's judgeship, it's not so simple because sin is getting really complicated. Israel is on this downward spiral, and the whirlpool that they have created will continue for hundreds of years after this. There'll be a few ups, but it'll be mainly be down. And it's going to end with them as a nation being removed from this promised land by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And what we see for the first time with Gideon is that the people begin to backslide back to where they were during rather than after the rule of the judge Savior. And we're also shown this time the deep flaws of the judge Savior himself. So rather than summing up the piece in one verse like God had the narrator do earlier with all the other judges, the writer of Judges devotes two whole chapters to what's going on. Like, this is imp- we should be catching this. Not just one verse, two chapters. Maybe I should pay attention. King Gideon. Is he a king? Israel asked Judge Gideon to be their king. It's in Judges 8.22. They say to him after the battle's all said and done, rule over us, <laughs> your son and your grandson, because you have saved us. Did you notice anything in that statement? Because you have saved us. Hello? Is anybody home? What did you not just get? Like the entire lesson <laughs> from God's words and his actions. You know, we came to church Sunday morning, but we're just not getting it. Israel clearly wants to reject what God wants for them at this particular time in history, the way he wants to rule his people. They're saying, that's not what we want. His method right now until the Messiah, God's chosen ruler, comes with perfect justice. His current method is is dealing with the rebellion against his rule to bring a judge in who's anointed with power from Yahweh, who's empowered to deal with the crisis at hand by Yahweh, and to lead the people back to living under Yahweh's rule. Who's the king? God's the king. They also have this tabernacle that, that human priests and Levites and animal sacrifices functioning as this imperfect way to be accepted, to be able to come before God until the perfect, divine, sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, and his life, death, and resurrection is accomplished. 
That's the way God's designed it. If Gideon says yes, Israel will have a king appointed by people. And the rule will pass on down through that lineage. That's not God's plan. But Gideon still has this Godward sense, at least for the time being. And he turns down the request in Judges 8.22, and he says, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Oh, Gideon, at least you got that. We don't need a king to obey. We need to obey the king we already have, and his name is Yahweh. And this is really the last time that Gideon remembers who God is and who and he remembers who he, Gideon, is. Ironically and tragically, he immediately contradicts what he just said, as truthful as it was. He's refused to be their king, but as you're going to see, he starts to assume the honor due a king. He asks for a financial reward for God's deliverance. How convenient. Gold that they had taken from the Midianites and he becomes a really rich person. And then in Judges 8, 27, it says, Gideon made the gold that he had received as a reward into an ephod, which he placed in Afra, his hometown. This is shades of Aaron when he was with Moses. And Moses is up on the mountain and the people get impatient. This is shades of Aaron forming a golden calf out of the gold taken from the Egyptians right after God's amazing deliverance of them from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. And then the people worship the calf right there at the foot of the mountain where God's meeting with Yahweh on top of the mountain. It's like incredible. It's like, is anybody that stupid? Yes. We are in the room. So what's going on here? Well, on Ephod is a woven vestment. It's, it's skilled labor. It's unbelievable, the, uh, ar the artists who worked on this, because they, they took gold and made it into fine thread and wove it with yarn and made this, this vestment that a priest would wear, the high priest would wear, when he went into the tabernacle, the tent that, that God had Moses construct where God was present with His people. And at this point, it's in a city called Shiloh. And there were other pieces of clothing to go with it, but the point was that these garments were worn by the high priest. The, the ephod was part of a cleansing preparation for a priest so that when he came before God, it was a symbol that he had confessed his sins and made sacrifices and was washed and pure on the inside and the outside, and he was representing all the tribes of Israel before God, and it was really special to put that on. It was later even a way to um, come before God and to discern what God's will was about certain things in times of crisis. David had the priest put on the ephod twice to find out, God, what do you want me to do? So Gideon, remember Gideon, though, he has been given answers from God. We've seen this as we've read the story. Directly from God all the way along this adventure. He's talked with God like Moses talked with God. And, and, I, and I'm seeing here that he may think that he has this inside track 
on God's will, and he's taking advantage of it as he consolidates his power in ruling the people. And in making his own copy of an ephod, which is like, what are you thinking, Gideon? Come on. The sacred priestly symbolic object of purity that only a priest wears before God, Gideon is essentially setting up his hometown as the rival place of worship to Shiloh. So people are naturally going to come to, not Shiloh, but to Gideon's hometown and come to Gideon for guidance, for insight. Hey, hey, this guy's talked to God like Moses talked to God. And God's given him all the right answers. So they'd see Ophrah as the place where God can be found, as the place where God can be approached, and God didn't ask for this. And by the way, do we need anything like an ephod today? I know there are places in the world you can go to apparently find God. We don't need an ephod. We don't need special people. We don't need special places, special buildings, special rituals to talk to God today. Just like we no longer need to sacrifice lambs. We don't need to put them on an altar and to burn them before God to atone for our sins. We don't need any of those things to approach God. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, as the perfect Lamb. He's our Savior. He is John 14, 6, the way and the truth and the life. Jesus, the Son, removed the barrier of sin between you and I, the creature, and our Creator, our Father, God. We don't have to fear God's wrath when we approach Him. We don't ever need to think that He can't hear us when we ask a request. Hebrews 4.16 tells us we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And as we're told in 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Well, what happens next with poor Gideon? 8.27, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. They sold themselves to it. Have we in our culture, even within the church, sold ourselves to anything other than God? Is it possible? Judges were supposed to turn turn the people from being unfaithful to Yahweh. Gideon instead leads the people to be unfaithful to Yahweh. Verse 28, during Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Wow. The patience and mercy of God. But it's a compromised peace. It's a peace without true worship. It's, it's a peace without true obedience. It's a peace through a man who is supposed to have some kind of inside track to God. Men who are more about 
themselves and their kingdoms that they're building than God. It kind of sounds familiar. The anti-judge. So Gideon starts acting more like a king than a judge. He has 70 sons through many wives. It's like, first of all, Gideon, that's not a good idea. And all God's people said? All right, right. And then he has one son by a concubine. And he even calls this non-wife son Abimelech in chapter 8, verse 31. Do you know what the name means? My father is king. Gideon, you said, I don't want to be king. The Lord is king. My son, I give you this name. Your dad is king. We are Sometimes we're just, I, I, I know some of you are into self-esteem and everything, but sometimes we are just useless, aren't we? When we neglect God and leave him off to the, push him off to the side, the things we say, the things we do are, oh, they're just ridiculous. They're like somebody on the outside is looking in and going, this is a bad story. <laughs> Don't you see it? And what Gideon has rejected in name, he lives out in reality. Do we sometimes lift up the name of God, but we go out in reality and do something else? And this is only, only a few verses since Gideon turned down the kingship. Can, can you and I sometimes know something intellectually, like um, God rules? Do you, do you know that? That God rules? Everybody? Yeah, okay, cool but have it not really grip our heart, which will show itself this week when we try to rule something ourselves and take control? Can we have a mental grasp on the doctrines of God's grace and His providence and His mercy and even have all the right Bible answers? God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, get all the right Bible answers, but our heart has not really understood how these truths about God work out in our life. Gideon's sin was a failure to live out what he knew to be true. And the amazing thing is here, what he had seen to be true, he was the guy. It's what Paul tells the Galatians in uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. It's a failure to walk in line with the gospel. Well, you've heard about Antichrist, right? We, we talked about that a lot when we went through our, uh, Revelation, a couple uh, chapters in Revelation. Was that last year? Is that that long ago? Okay, man. And uh, there are Antichrists that you read about in 1 John chapter 4. Here we have an anti-judge. 8.33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And Bereth here means covenant. So they made Baal, the, the, the lesser god of the Canaanites, their covenant god. Yahweh's their covenant god. They made him. This is how bad it gets. 
So this time the Lord did not provide a judge to save them from the foreign kings, but he provides an anti-judge who would make himself king, and his name is Abimelech. And he doesn't deliver Israel from any outside oppression. He oppresses Israel from within. And this time God's judgment on Israel is this. And listen, listen to this. We all need to catch this. God's judgment is to give them exactly what they wanted. Be careful what you ask for, what you long for, if it's not God. It's an extremely bloody account that you can read on your own, but Abimelech represents the rejection of the Lord as king, and he sets before our eyes the deadly curse that comes with power and authority and the hunger to control, and we see it in all kinds of places of authority today. Abimelech is Gideon's son, as I said, by his concubine, and he lived, uh, Abimelech lived over in a place called Shechem. So from his birth, he's an outsider to the family because it's through a concubine, not through one of the wives, so he stands to inherit, inherit nothing. Now, Shechem is a, is a place of huge importance in Israel. It's a place where God... Uh, first appeared to Abraham when he was in the land and told him, take a look around. I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. And Abraham built the first altar to God in Shechem. And then when Israel came back 400 years later from captivity in Egypt, it was the place where they all gathered under Joshua and built an altar to the Lord and worshiped him. It's a, what happens in Shechem in Judges chapter 9 I guess it would be similar to Americans deciding to reinstitute slavery and do it in Gettysburg. It would be like Americans reinstituting racial segregation and doing it in Montgomery, Alabama. This is what, how important Shechem is and what's happening here. So he convinces the leaders of, of, of Shechem that he should be the king, and most of them are his uncles. They're related to his, his mom. And they say, okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And so they fund his treachery with a temple money to a false god that's in Shechem. That's how low they have gotten, that this sacred town has a false, false uh, idol in, in its temple right there. And so Abimelech goes out and he massacres all the sons of Gideon, just wipes them out hire some mercenaries with the money they gave him. And the people of Shechem eventually turn on him. It's just this crazy story. Just go see. Because they're as fickle as today's sports fans. And so he massacres all of them. This horrific episode in Judges points out three truths about God's judgment. The first one is God's judgment often comes unseen. You and I don't see it. Abimelech ruled over Israel, 9.23. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between him and the leaders of Shechem. The people at that time could not have seen what God was doing, sending this spirit to use the evil in the Shechemite hearts for God's just purposes. And even in our own day, we have no divinely inspired narrator to lift the curtain on our current culture and our current affairs to tell us where and when and exactly how God is judging people today. We know He is. It's declared to us. And many have attempted to guess, but Scripture is certain that it is happening. 
And sometimes we may even guess right. And we can point to certain times in our own life and say, you know, looking back, I can see what God was doing in my life because of my sin and why all those things happened to bring me to this place of repentance today. But we don't have the complete big picture. I know there's lots of books written by Christian authors out there that say we do. I would say just save your money. We don't have the complete big picture when it comes to most current affairs or to what God is even up to in someone else's life and why things are happening to them the way they are. So, secondly, God's judgment often comes after a wait. Don't you, doesn't that drive you nuts, those of you who are impatient? The lone survivor, there was a lone survivor of the 70 sons, and his name was Jotham. And he comes over to um, Shechem, and he, I guess he's standing on a hill, and he, he announces a curse. And he says, first of all, you guys were nuts to make this guy king. It was a bad choice. And I'm asking God's curse on all of you for what the evil and wickedness that you're doing. But then he had to wait three years in hiding for God's justice to finally roll. And don't you and I also? As we are put to the test in our world today, patience, trust, God has this. And the last one is that God's judgment often comes through the outworking of human sin. This is a hard one for a lot of people in the church. God uses wickedness and sinful people to accomplish his purposes? That can't be right. Shechem was destroyed because of its false gods. Abimelech was destroyed because of his desire to retain his position at at any human cost. After he massacred Shechem, he had no need to attack this little city next door. It was just bloodlust. He was after power. And as he approached the city to burn people in a tower alive like he had done in Shechem, a lady throws the the top of a millstone, the big rock, she throws it off, and it hits him in the head and cracks open his skull. His greatest sin was also his downfall. God in His judgment often uses human rebellion as His tool against those who rebel against Him. So is God absent? What say you? It looks like He's absent, doesn't it? But He's not absent. Is God absent as our society around us pushes Him away? The Shechemites used idle money from an idol that shouldn't have even been in the town to fund a massacre. Abimelech works his bloody way through Israel. God would have seemed absent, wouldn't he? If you lived then, especially to those who are suffering through all this, especially to those who are praying to Yahweh through all this, please make this end. Jotham, it says, is afraid of his brother Abimelech. He could have been forgiven for wondering, was my curse dumb? Like, was this a bad idea? Is God ever going to make this right? 
And even when the Shechemites and, the, and Abimelech himself all lie dead on the ground at the end of chapter 9, it looks like it was just the natural course of events that took these guys out. There was a, there was a vengeful feud. Those always end terribly. There was the fortunate throw of some lady off of a tower that hits him in the head. God does seem absent. This is really weird stuff. But the narrator lifts the curtain of human affairs for us, and we get a glimpse of what God has been up to all along. And it says, God sent an evil spirit in order that the crime against um, Gideon's 70 sons might be avenged. And once Abimelech is dead, it said, thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done. Who repaid it? God. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. God may have appeared to be silent, but he's never absent. It looks like you just reap what you sow. That's true. But who makes that happen? God. There's no lightning bolt from heaven, just a rock hurled by a woman off a tower. But there was justice. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's judgment is not only reserved for a future day, it's a present reality. It's going on now. And we, His children, we have a certain hope. And this guaranteed hope we're supposed to be sharing. Would you rise with me? Let's lift our voices to our Heavenly Father, to our God at my prayers this morning is that we as believers get these stories and judges that they're not just these crazy stories, but they're supposed to change and transform our lives. We're supposed to learn. My bigger prayer than that is that anyone listening online or you here today, and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have not placed your faith and trust in Him alone for your sin debt that you owe and you can't pay that you would do that today. You'd come see me, someone here that you trust, and let us share with you this gospel truth. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, acknowledging your grace and your mercy has been poured out on us we have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, we, we admit that at times we just, we just put things down to the natural course of events. And we forget that you're behind it all. You are behind the salvation that each of us enjoys. You are behind the salvation that you're going to perform in people's lives that we know. And God, we anticipate that. We ask to be a part of that. And that's our prayer. That's our hope. And we thank you in the name of Jesus who makes this possible. Amen.